Reginald and Wendy talk about being pregnant. Reginald and Wendy drove in silence. Reginald felt a strange calm overlying a deep terror. I think that, started Wendy, then stopped. She bit her lip and felt a rising bubble of tears. Her brain was repeating the inevitable mantra of all addicted to self-pity. This is not how it is supposed to be. She felt that a special moment had been torn from her by her brute of a husband, that he was denying her something that was her just due. She turned and stared huffily out of the window, watching the rolling granite, the turning buildings, the families walking hand in hand. They always get what they want. I never get what I want. Wendy settled into her seat. A depressingly pleasant shiver ran through her body. So this is how the afternoon is going to be spent. I shall be offended, and then he shall be offended. It was horrible to think of how sad it would be, and terrifying to think that it could not be stopped. Wendy and Reginald had reached a phase in their marriage, an inevitable phase probably, called armed blame. They needed the same things from each other at the same time, but these things could not be two-way. She needed comfort, he needed comfort. He needed sex, she needed tenderness. She needed to be listened to, he needed to be listened to. They both needed unconditional love, but they were neither each other's parents, so it was impossible. They both needed, but never received enough to satisfy, to assuage, to comfort and bring to heal all the discontents of daily living. They both needed, but never received. Neither could imagine that this was because their demands were irrational. It could only be because the other was withholding, punishing, manipulating. They were maddened by thirst, and could not stir from an oasis whose imaginary water forever turned to sand in their mouths. Reginald parked the car, and they went inside. They went inside, and suddenly saw their flat, and stopped in the hallway. Books were everywhere. Don't touch them, Reginald always shouted. They're in order! Clothes from the sudden lovemaking of a fortnight past were still at the foot of the sofa. Cups of old coffee and plates with the detritus of toast sat on the side tables, half covered with half-finished crosswords. The carpet was vaguely mottled, vaguely crunchy. The cushions on the sofa were uneven. Three and a half pairs of shoes were scattered across the floor. The glass on a picture hanging on the wall had been cracked two months ago, but had not been repaired. The angle had been corrected, but badly. A wave of depression swept over the couple. They stood half a foot apart, feeling like they were children who had been playing at house for far too long, and it was high time some adult came in and took charge. Reginald walked into the living room and sat heavily on the sofa. He half expected to feel something sharp jab into his buttocks. He looked at the dust on the mantelpiece, on the light fixtures, the windowsill. He took a deep breath and coughed, feeling close to angry tears. He got up and said, Do you want some tea? 
standing in the doorway, Wendy paused. He had a way of offering things that always seemed to imply that she was somehow remiss in not offering them to him first. But it was not something that he had ever admitted, and she did not want to raise the issue now because it was a bottomless hole. She shook her head, thinking, If I don't want tea, I can't have been remiss in not offering it to him, although I suppose he would just say that I never think of his needs unless they coincide with my own. He went into the kitchen. He was clattering around, pouring water into the kettle. Wendy tried to decipher the volume of his puttering. Too loud or too quiet was always dangerous. Too loud was anger. Too quiet was suppressed anger. She felt a wave of weariness washing over her like an oily, insistent waterfall which was trying to pull her down into the floor. She kicked off her shoes with an impatient spasm, deliberately hurting her own heel, feeling a stab of dark satisfaction. Sleep. She wanted to sleep for a thousand years. The man in the kitchen was an utter stranger. What were they doing together? Why had they... She touched her belly button, wondering if there was lint in there. Spain fluttered through her mind, standing on the balcony, watching the man in the kitchen running along a dawn street. How on earth did he end up here? She wondered, and then remembered that she was standing in his flat, the flat which neither of them would have ever seen if they had not been married. She touched a crack, running almost the entire height of the whole wall. Neither of us would ever have seen this crack. It would not have existed in our conception of the world. The wine of the kettle peaked and subsided. Wendy felt a little dramatically that her knees might buckle and fold. She imagined Reginald standing over her prostrate form, ignoring her histrionics, asking her if she wanted milk in her tea. Not only would he not help me up, he can never even remember whether I like milk in my tea or not. Glancing down, she saw that her hands were in little fists like white, knuckled, striking snowballs. Wendy heard the fridge open. A short pause. She lifted one foot. "'Jesus Christ!' snarled Reginald from the kitchen. "'We're underway,' thought Wendy with dark glee. "'What has his ugly little hamster mind come up with this time?' "'Wendy!' he cried. She walked into the kitchen, feeling a flush of energy coursing along the surface of her bones. "'Yes, dear?' she said in the tone of voice which said, I am willing to take this as far as you are. You went out for groceries yesterday, didn't you? Aha, she thought, Lord Reginald finds some little want of his not instantly appeased. Yes, I did. Then I have two questions, I suppose. He held up a bottle of milk and shook it. There was just a little white residue on the bottom. The first is antecedent to the second. The first is, why is there an empty bottle of milk in the fridge? Wait, let me ask the second, it's a goodie. The second, and perhaps more important, is why is there not a full bottle of milk in the fridge? Several responses flitted through her mind, but they were all testable and verifiable. They were out of milk, the store was closed. They have started a delivery service, and I signed up for that instead. 
"'Sorry,' smiled Reginald. "'Is that a difficult question? "'I mean, you're an intelligent woman. "'Your pattern recognition is first-rate. "'Every week we go through a bottle of milk. "'Well, I go through a bottle of milk with my cornflakes. "'You're more of a toast person, so let's just see if there's bread.' "'He turned and opened the bread bin. "'Ah, bread, splendid. "'Butter, yes. "'Jam, yes, two kinds. "'And marmalade, so everything is there for you, "'but not for me.' "'What, do you think I deliberately refuse to get food for you?' "'No. Oh, no. I think it's actually worse than that. "'I would be relieved if it was only that. "'I think that it didn't even cross your mind to get things for me. "'If you like it, here it is. "'If I like it, it's not. "'Do I take milk and my tea?' she demanded suddenly. "'Excuse me?' "'Well, if I am so remiss in understanding your needs, "'you must be excellent at understanding mine. "'So, do I take milk in my tea?' He looked at her so stupidly that for a moment she was tempted to laugh out loud. But she didn't want to raise the stakes quite that high. Yet. "'I'm not getting sidetracked by your little games,' he said after a moment. "'We're going to stay on my issue and then deal with yours.' "'This is dealing with your issue. I mean, if your issue is that we're out of milk, this is not about us being out of milk!' cried Reginald. "'Don't start willfully misinterpreting me right at the beginning or the whole day will get fucked!' "'and we don't want this day, of all days, to get fucked. "'Please don't swear,' she said. "'Don't make me. "'Don't willfully misinterpret me "'and then restrain me from expressing upset. "'You will not swear,' she said with sudden violence, "'jabbing her finger at him. "'Oh, but you can raise your voice and jab your finger. "'It's so lower class. "'I feel like I'm married to some tattooed sailor. "'Oh, and you standing there like some vengeful washerwoman "'is the height of sophistication.' "'getting angry with me because I might be unhappy about me forever "'being without things to eat forever!' "'She shrieked, forever! "'Then this goddamned argument is over "'because if you are forever without things to eat "'that you must have died long ago!' "'It's a fucking turn of phrase, Wendy,' "'he said with headmaster condescension. "'Yes, I do scrounge up some grub from time to time, "'but I am not happy that you only buy groceries for yourself "'with my goddamned money!' "'She paused.' nodding slowly. I was waiting for the real issue to come out. You don't like being the provider. You don't like supporting me. You think I'm like your mother. What? he cried. He shook the milk bottle in mad frustration. I just want some milk for my fucking tea. No, she said scornfully. It's more than that. You wouldn't be shaking like that if it was just about milk. She smiled. Maybe mother's milk? And now, of all days, you are going mental about milk. Come on, don't you think that's significant? Don't! He cried, backing away a step. Don't make this all about my fucked up past. I have to have one or two issues that you can't blame on my mother. I have to have a voice here and now in the present with you. You can't just deflect everything all the time. Whenever I have a criticism of you, you are not perfect. Of course not, smiled Wendy. But why today, Reggie? Why about milk and what you need? Come on. I feel like I'm going insane, he said, the bottle lowered in his hand. I can't talk to you. But you're not talking to me, she said. You're talking to someone else. Why is there no milk for me? He screamed, his face contorting. He raised the bottle, his fingers white. She flinched half expecting it to shatter in his grip. She remembered something suddenly, which was that it was almost impossible to break an egg by wrapping your hand 
around it and squeezing. "'Listen to me!' he shouted, taking a step forward. Wendy turned and ran into the living room. "'Oh, no!' he said, coming down the hallway. "'You don't get away that easy. I bring an issue up. You won't listen. You don't just run away from me!' "'You keep your distance,' she panted, grabbing a cushion. "'You animal!' He stood in the doorway to the living room. "'Oh, a cushion. Good. Go on, throw it at me. We'll both fucking die from the dust. I mean, what kind of housekeeper are you? How can we expect to bring a shut up?' she cried, bending over and clutching her stomach. "'This place is a pigsty. You want to talk about lower class?' He reached out and flipped a plate from the side table. It spun through the air and then hit the carpet with a muffled thud. "'That was your plate, Reginald,' she said. "'I cannot be your mother.' "'Will you shut the fuck up about my mother?' shouted Reginald. "'I'm not asking you to be my mother. Just clean the shit up once in a while. "'Do you know?' that I can figure out exactly where you've been at every moment of the day when I come home. Oh, she was in the kitchen, I say, because there's a dirty knife and an open jam jar. Then she read the paper in the living room and had some tea, which I know because there is the newspaper and the teacup. Then I know you had a shower because the soap is in the bottom of the tub and there's a towel on the floor. Every move. Every one. And then you get upset because I left one plate in the living room. Your plate, she said, pointing. Your books. Always your goddamn books, which I can't touch. Your... Trousers? I mean, what the fuck is a pair of trousers doing in the living room anyway? What kind of house did you grow up in? Your crossword, your shit everywhere. You want me to run around cleaning up after you? Well, you'd better start earning a lot more money than Reggie because I'm going to have to hire a goddamned maid. Yes! Shouted Reginald, jabbing his finger at her. It was a gesture they traded to facilitate mutual offense. Yes! It's all about money. You can't, as a woman who sits on her fanny all day, find any way to keep a one-bedroom flat clean because you don't have a maid. What planet are you living on? That's your fucking job. You knew that I wasn't wealthy when you married me. What shark is currently threatening your frail little sense of reality that a wife is supposed to run a household? A wife is not supposed to be a maid. And a man is supposed to bring home a decent income. I would say that we're doing about equal, wouldn't you? I'm sorry, he said, taking a step forward and thrusting out a hand. She raised her cushion. I'm sorry. My name is Reginald Spencer. I am a graduate student at Oxford. Thus, I don't make very much filthy lucre at the moment. I have some potential, of course. My father is an MP. And what is your name? You are such a shit! She cried out, her face twisting in agony. Oh, I'm sorry, he said in a mocking tone. Am I puncturing any of Her Majesty's fantasies that she can sit around eating chocolates while I slave away to build a career? That she can have, oh, I don't know, Maybe two or three little duties which she is expected to perform. I mean, not too many, because Lord knows Her Majesty is easily taxed, but a few. And that I might expect her to pull just a little weight in our little team, or am I supposed to do all the rowing? I don't have any clue what we're talking about anymore, she said flatly. You're just not making any sense at all. Now step aside. You're not going out now, he warned. Won't decide. Why not? You want some goddamned milk. He frowned. You're going to get me milk? She laughed. You know, you just had to say, Listen, Wendy, we're out of milk. Can you run to the cafeteria to get some? I would have gone gladly. 
But you have to make everything about your needs, about how I'm failing you, about how everyone is failing you all the time, and you're just starving to death in your own house right there on the couch, reaching out, and I don't care because I'm a self-obsessed little bitch whose only purpose and motive in this veil of tears is to make your life a living hell. I swear to God, Rich, you are the most hysterical person I've ever met. Reginald scowled. His beady eyes scanned her, searching madly for any kind of falsehood. You don't have to interrogate me and get a signed confession if I'm out of milk, she cried merrily. It's just milk, you moron. He nodded slowly. She grinned at him. She was still being a bitch. She knew that. But he could not penetrate her at the moment. She was merry and dismissive and invulnerable. All right, he said slowly. Then let's do this. You go and get some milk. I'll reheat the tea because it's all gone to shit now. Then, when you come back, we'll sit and have our little tea. And then I'll mark my midterms, and you'll set about turning this place into something we can bring a child into without giving him rubella if he touches the floor. She stared at him, then burst into tears. He smiled, walked forward, and held her stiff form. Tom meets Klaus's family. It was the grace which first got Tom's attention. It just went on and on. Grace in England was a short, muttered affair, much like an arguing Italian couple might cross themselves as a black cat passes before them. But the grace in Klaus's household was quite different, much longer, intense, passionate, almost delirious. Tom didn't quite like that word. It seemed condescending. But really, what was one to think when one seems to have stepped off a modern plane into a medieval morality tale? In his household, Grace was just a praise the Lord and pass the mash benediction. The only time it was strained was when his mother came down to dinner. She got enraged if she heard Grace, because, as she once put it, the Lord had stripped the table of her heart bare and she would be damned if she would praise his food. Actually, one of the interesting things about Ruth was that she had the ability to completely remove capitals from her speech in contradistinction to Klaus, who could not control his. When Ruth talked about God, it was always God, lowercase, one of many gods, somehow like ghost, which was also ethereal and uncapitalized. In fact, Quentin said once in a rare burst of humor about his wife, Ruth puts the immaterial in immaterial, when she spoke of God and his power, his might, his justice, she always talked about it with the same emphasis she might have put on a neighbor who just happened to be a judge, and not a very honest one either. Someone who had become a judge through political pull or bribery or accident. The sentence, God works in mysterious ways, became, in Ruth's world, who knows why Bob does what he does. Bob was, in fact, her favorite substitute for God. She would say to Tom, as he sat on her bed, about the age of eleven or so, what if they just took the whole Bible and substituted the word Bob for God? Could you picture it? Bob created the world in seven days. Beware the wrath of Bob. Bob will not be mocked. Bob is eternal and infallible. <laughs> Mankind would laugh himself out of religion in a fortnight. I call a cricket bat Bob. I can still use it to play cricket. It doesn't change what it describes. But I call God Bob. It's all over. 
and she would laugh, of course, about 90 seconds before sobbing. Tom was surprised that Klaus's father was so religious. It was sort of odd. English priests seemed embarrassed to talk about sin. They are like over-friendly bosses who break off from talking about the habits of their pets to regretfully remind their employees to please see if they could see their way clear to finishing something soon. The whole relationship of a priest to his congregation is based on sin and hellfire. There is no other reason to go, to be there other than to be saved. And in order to save their congregations, the priest has to damn them first, supply and demand. But there was precious little damning in English churches. Mentioning hell would be like wet farting on squeaky leather during high tea with royalty. But the Germans were quite comfortable with hell. In England, people went to church to gossip about clothing. Women made their husbands go because church was like a radio serial of scandal. Petty thrills and personal disasters, great fun. But in Germany, this was all different. The Heppner House was a large, creaky wooden structure with a tall peaked roof and windows that glared out from under the impressive brow. It was as chilly as an English house, but lacked the warm spots. There were no soft cushions and thick blankets. Inside, the walls were whitewashed, and there was no ornamentation except for a large two-man saw hung on a wall over the most comfortable chair. This made relaxing a little difficult because any time Tom sat down and glanced up, he saw the teeth of a rusty blade suspended over him. When he first met Father Martin Heppner, he had been struck by the older man's oak-like strength. He shook Tom's hand as if it were a coconut in a strength contest. He had the ropey muscles and hard skin of an older man who has worked like a dog and eaten like a nun. Tom Spencer, good to meet you, he had said. Tom had frowned at him. The man was obviously unbalanced, at least by English standards, but it remained to be seen whether he could be jammed into the uneasy category of eccentric. Martin had pale grey eyes that seemed to be constantly on the alert, roving and wild, as if he were under constant surveillance by pickpocketing ghosts. He had great difficulty managing his physical strength, Tom noticed, as was evidenced by the crushing handshake. Shortly after he was taken into the Hepner household, Tom noticed Martin pick up a near-molten mug of coffee, wince, but then compose himself and continue cupping it in his hands as it cooled, sipping it as if it were at room temperature. Tom watched, fascinated. When Martin finally set the mug down, his hand was beat red and possibly blistered as well, but that could have as easily been calluses. Martin was also, Tom noticed, entirely unconscious of his effect on his family. He was gracious and pleasant with his seven children and polite and solicitous with his wife, but they moved in complete terror of him. He was like a seething outcrop of fiery lava in a stream which hissed and gassed to get past him as soon as possible. No, thought Tom, that wasn't quite right. He was like a man sitting on that red rock, waving and smiling at the water as it parted and rushed by. Martin smiled when one of his daughters filled his glass of water. He patted his wife's arm when she cleared his plate. He winked at a son who replaced a soiled napkin, 
and they met his eyes, they smiled back, but there was something wrong with their faces. They were a little too frozen, a little too immediate, a little too empty. And there was something missing from each of the children, as there is in Klaus, thought Tom. Tea time was a scene of perfect domestic tranquility. Stories were told, the news from Berlin was disseminated. The children recited poems before their beaming father. Renata, Martin's wife, played the recorder for a few minutes. Except for the occasional, praise God, everything seemed quite average. A happy, rural family, well-behaved offspring, some slightly eye-rolling glances from Klaus, the more urbane sibling. Eager, pretty, well-scrubbed, daughter, salt of the earth, sons, but something, something. Tom tried to catch what it was. Martin's eyes flashed occasionally, and the family seemed to speed up to try on a few different personalities to please him, to allay his discontent. Once, when Klaus was telling the news from Berlin, he mentioned that one of the men preaching on the street corners looked like a mad prophet, and Martin's eyes darkened, almost visibly. His demeanor did not change. It was something that the family seemed to perceive with some sixth sense. It was infectious. Tom found himself considering his replies more carefully. He began to become worried that Martin would ask Tom about his religious beliefs, which would not be good. This is a house of punishment, he thought. But it is not a hysterical house of punishment. It is not a house in which punishment lashes out or screams or taunts and then withdraws. This is a house of correction. Under this roof, punishment is well planned and well executed. It is not doubted or excused. It does not hesitate. It is a righteous fist. Tom frowned, wondering if he was, after his time in Berlin, becoming a tad paranoid about the German soul. The children were unscarred. Everyone seemed hearty enough. All right, Martin's eyes did not exactly laugh at the same time as his lips, but there was no point making up things because Ruth did not happen to like religion. Sure, Renata was missing a front tooth, but this was the country after all. Klaus had warned him about grace and told him to prepare his stomach accordingly. He had also given Tom a few laxatives, saying that all would become clear once the food was on the table. And so when they sat down for dinner, the entire family seemed to go slack at once. They stared at their clasped hands and closed their eyes. Martin recited the following. A prayer of general thanks. A prayer for the farmers and their children. Some instructive stories from Deuteronomy. A request for the Lord to bring his wrath down on the heads of the large landowners. Unless that was not the Lord's intention, in which case, please grant them all patience with the large landowners. A plea for the Lord to keep temptation at bay, unless it was his desire that they be tested, in which case, bring it on. Another prayer of general thanks. A prayer that his wife forgive him for letting the food get cold. There was general family laughter at the last joke, which was obviously well-worn but well-liked. They dug in. Tom had no real problem with meat. He liked being at the top of the food chain. But there was something 
about the German diet, which seemed to say, since we are at the top of the food chain, there is no point reaching down more than a rung or two. There were no vegetables except for potatoes, and Tom could not for the life of him remember whether they were vegetables. There was sausage and bread, and not the nice kind of white English bread, but bread which was so black that it seemed candlelight could not escape its surface. It was like eating a wafer of pure night, or one of those portable holes which show up in cartoons. To drink beer, even for the children. Beer is the drink of the worker, cried Martin, filling Tom's mug. It only intoxicates the lazy. And this became a kind of jovial yet vaguely dangerous test. Beer was drunk by all, and if they showed any signs of drunkenness, then they were lazy. Martin asked how things were in England, and Tom replied delicately, inserting as little secular humanism as humanly possible. He did not get very far. England was apparently guilty of the following sins. Secular materialism for having an empire. Agnosticism by tolerating foreign religions in the empire. Racial impurity by encouraging immigration. Pride for imposing Versailles on Germany when justice belonged to God alone. Usury for allowing banking. Greed for trading with India. There was more. England was also slothful for getting rid of conscription, and some of it was quite well informed. The problem was, though, that every time Martin stopped, glared at Tom and demanded a response, Klaus, whose arms were folded, would jab his fingers into his friend's ribs. The message was clear. By religious standards, these are just criticisms. We do not want to invoke secular standards, or you and I will be sleeping in the barn. It was not that Tom was psychic. Klaus had gone over all this in the train on the way, in exhaustive detail. So why did I come then? wondered Tom for a brief moment, in the respite of Martin tearing off a chunk of bread. Klaus is not even really my friend. Oh, yes. Because this trip is being paid for by Gunther, who wants me to get something out of it. And I cannot understand Germany just by being unnerved by its theatre. Tom Talks with Martin's Children It came to pass that Tom had rather intimate chats with each of Martin's children. It happened over the course of a few days. The first time was after Tom's evening bath, which, true to the nature of Martin's household, was a shed in the woods with cold water, he was walking back to the house shivering when he saw a slim blonde figure lurking by the coal shed. Tom had never gone through a shy face, but he knew the signs. He was reticent about certain topics such as his family or prospects, but he was not a shy person as a whole. If he had been older or preternaturally wise, Tom could have learned something about true shyness from his brother. Hart could be shy, but his shyness had more to do with suppressed aggression than self-doubt. So when Tom, walking and trying to restore the circulation in his scalp with a rough towel, saw the slim, retiring figure, he stopped and almost smiled. If only shy people knew that the rest of us are not such ogres, he thought. Mr. Spencer, said the figure. It was Soren, Klaus's younger brother by three years. Really, Soren, Tom is fine. Did you have a good bath? Well, it got my attention smiled Tom, almost wishing he had some breadcrumbs to spread towards the boy. Well, not quite boy. He's got to be over twenty. Soren stepped forward. You must be... be cold. Yes. Can we chat inside? 
Soren cocked his head. Why don't you go inside and warm up, and then we, we can perhaps... Tom wrapped his bathrobe around himself. You want to wait here? Soren nodded, writhing in the straitjacket of having no clear reasons for his requests. Or more likely humiliating reasons, thought Tom. All right, grinned Tom. He ran upstairs, wrapped himself warm, threw on some clothes, and then stepped outside his room. Renata stood in the hallway. She had her hands folded against her belly button, looking for all the world like some Swiss clock mannequin. She smiled at Tom. Is there anything you need? No, I just... All right, I don't want to tell her that I'm going back outside to see Soren. I think I've picked up on this family first. I'm going downstairs. Everyone has gone to bed, I think. Are you thirsty? No, I, I just left my socks by the bathing hut. I can get those for you. That's all right. But you're chilled from your bath. On her belly, her hands crept away from each other, winding around her waist. I'm always chilled after my bath. We often use hot water in England, he smiled, hoping to avert offense. It's very decadent. No doubt, said Renata. Her eyelids seemed to be drooping slightly. Tom suddenly felt torn. There were so many doors facing this landing, every door a bedroom, and against every door he imagined a set of ears pressed to the wood. I was going to be a nun, said Renata, her voice soft. I see, frowned Tom. Go, she said, standing to one side. Tom ran his fingers through his hair. He saw her eyes following his gesture with bird-like rapidity. Thanks, he said, and good night. He ran downstairs and went out the back door. It seemed as if Soren had not moved an inch. His head was still cocked. Thank you, he said. Sorry, I was chatting with your mother for a few minutes. Soren stared at him. So, what's up? Can we walk just for a few minutes? Of course. Be better than standing in the cold. They started walking down the rutted wagon path to the main road. The night was clear. Tom glanced up. After about twenty minutes, I hear your eyes really adjust to darkness and you can see all the stars. Soren did not respond. Tom felt a slight twitch of irritation. All right, we're out here now. What? But he knew that shy people are easily startled, so he tried to enjoy the walk and not measure the number of seconds it would take for Soren to speak. In the city, things are very bad? he said finally. Quite bad, yes. I have never met a foreigner before. Tom nodded. He felt he should be looking around for an apple to demonstrate to Soren that the world was round. And both have a core! I have never been more than thirty miles from here. Father taught me at home. He rubbed his forearms unconsciously. I have never seen a map. You are like a traveler from the stars. But, started Tom, about to say, but Klaus has gone to school in England. Soren seemed to read his thoughts. Klaus does not speak much about England. He talks about Kant and Hegel and Schopenhauer. He lives in books. He could be anywhere, and I have great foreboding. That last sentence jolted Tom. About what? About the world, said Soren dreamily. He suddenly seemed to come back to himself in a little shudder and Tom was reminded of the falling in dreams which jerks one awake. 
Soren smiled apologetically. There was another pause. Then he said, It is written that the end of the world will come in fire and blood. They took a dozen or so more steps. Tom noticed that being the same height, they fell into step easily. Fire and blood, repeated Soren. There was some gulf of loneliness in the words that Tom felt with a deep shiver. But they might come from God, and they might come from the devil. The devil wants to provoke an apocalypse before God's just fire rains down from on high. He wants to introduce his son to the world to cause strife between nations, between brothers, and if we fall into that, we shall end the world before God does, and we shall all be damned. Tom pursed his lips. Strangely enough, despite the religious content, this was like being back on his mother's bedspread. If the cities are weakening, the countryside shall soon be at war, it is written. The devil always starts in the cities. He walked here during the Reformation, the Hundred Years' War. He knows Germany. Does he know England? Does... Tom cleared his throat. He wanted to turn his head and see how far they had come, but didn't want to be rude. Does the devil know England? How? In, in what way? Soren threw him a confused glance mixed with a slight tinge of hostility. Excuse me? Well, how, how would the devil know England? Is he at work there? Well, there's Reginald, thought Tom with a little internal giggle. All right, I don't believe in the devil. How to answer and still get a hearty repast of sausages and petrified bread in the morning? Tell me how the devil is at work in Germany, just so we're talking about the same things. Soren nodded. He did not seem to have to pick his way through the path. Tom suddenly knew that the young man spent a lot of time walking at night. Perhaps all night. Perhaps he thought that the devil could only find his bed. Do you know that a Christian can never murder? He said. How so? said Tom with admirable flexibility. We cannot kill the soul. We can damn ourselves, but we can never kill. Only God can kill the soul. And the Christian lives for the salvation of others. If we can save their souls by killing their bodies, that is the greatest temptation. It would be like amputating a little toe to save the body. Less, since the body is as nothing compared to the soul. Hmm, said Tom. Mad, but interesting. So the devil says to all... Christians, you must save others despite their wishes. The soul which is not saved is like a man in a fever. It raves and rejects what will save it. The soul that is damned is like a rotten tooth that resists being pulled. It is like a colicky baby. It cannot be comforted. So to expect a damned soul to save itself voluntarily is the height of folly. One might as well expect a falling rock to arrest its flight. The pure children is to the damned as a father is to his children. Spare the rod, lose the soul. Discipline is the only answer. Save the damned from themselves, whip them to God. Tom was getting used to the geyser-like eruptions of German passion, and so Soren's rising voice did not startle him too much. It is what I disagree with most, said Soren, pressing the length of his fingers to his brow. It is the voice of the devil, only free will can save the soul. Violence does not save the damned, it only damns the saved. Boy, the Spanish sure could have used you, smiled Tom. Soren shot him a look. I do not claim to understand English humor. 
Take the word English out of the sentence. I think you're on the money, thought Tom. All right. Why the city? Well, the city starts the war, but the country fights it. The boys in universities turn from God to the things of this world, and so lose their way and become vain, and so are susceptible to the devil. Now in the city they speak of worshipping a man, this leader, this Führer. Even Klaus speaks of it, of their belief, he added hastily, and that is profane. God appoints leaders, but he does not want us to worship them as gods, no more than we should worship a priest as a god. None before him. That is the covenant. So you want to know if we worship our leaders in England? I want to know if you believe in a truth higher than this world. Most English people are religious. Equivocation is the devil, smiled Soren, his eyes closing briefly. Will you stop us? Stop you? If Hitler gets in, will you stop him? Stop him from getting in? No. That is our temptation. If we fail, how? If he steps outside of Germany one foot, will you cut that foot off? I don't know if I can speak for all England. Soren nodded sadly. What about you? Just me. Yes, if we destroy ourselves, that is our business. But if we destroy ourselves and then reach like an infection to the rest of the world, will you stop us? I'm sure we will, but why do you say, have you read his book? The Bible? Mein Kampf. No. Read it. It should be easier if the devil is honest, but it's not. Tom stopped. His head seemed overfull. Is this what Gunther wanted me to see? Wait a moment, he said, turning to Soren. What about you? Why would I not fight against Hitler? Yes, because if we fail the test, we must suffer the consequences. If God lets this little Austrian live and rule us, it is because we have displeased him. God damn it, cried Tom, his face suddenly hot. He felt an impulse to apologize. Soren crossed himself. Why? Are you all so passive when you're not belligerent? Passive, echoed Soren. But if Hitler gets in, it shall be because we have voted for him. But that's just it. The Republic isn't working because of Nazism. So you say, okay, the solution is Nazism. That's what I mean by passive. When the American system wasn't working in 1776, they didn't respond with a dictatorship. They fought for freedom. But you've just cobbled together this massive a system half capitalist, half-socialist, all political pull and favors and influence, so of course it's not working. And you say that freedom has failed? Bullshit! This unholy mix of personal freedom and state compulsion has failed. Why is your economy failing? Because your government borrows billions to pay off interest groups. You have this mix, half-food and half-poison, and you say that you feel sick, so you have no choice but to switch to pure poison. That's what I mean by passive. Why not fight the government, the interest groups, the bastards who have hijacked your free market, get rid of government power instead of making it infinite? Soren was taken aback. Tom supposed that his rant had been building in him for days. But still, he refused to apologize. Why should I? He wanted to talk. Soren said, I suppose that you understand Germany about as well as I understand England. And just how is that? Well, freedom is nonsense. Your kind of freedom, freedom for capitalists and free thinkers, the freedom to be unemployed, to, to starve, to take drugs, the 
individual is nothing without the group. The group is the soul. The individual is just a cell. The group exists without the individual. The individual cannot exist without the group. The individual owes everything to the group. Oh, yes, demanded Tom. And what about personal conscience? That is satisfied by following the leader, said Soren placidly, not noticing any of his own contradictions. For if the group were immoral, why would God give that group power over the individual? All power comes from God. You are contradicting yourself so much that my head is spinning. And so? asked Soren, his eyes serene. If I seem to contradict myself, that is just because you lack faith. All right, said Tom, turning on his heels. We're going back now. They walked for a few minutes in silence. Then Tom turned to Soren and said, If you will not save yourself, you cannot expect England to save you. Then we are all damned, said Soren. Tom bid him a brusque good night and then sat in the living room, his heart pounding. I really could have thrashed him right there in the grass and dusted my hands at a job well done. Sleep would not come in his current state. But how is Soren different from Klaus? He's more honest than Klaus, and Klaus does not use that interminable religious terminology. But really, do I think that Klaus would fight against Hitler? The answer came immediately, irrevocably, no. Of course not. Hitler would have been placed there by that goddamned world spirit whose wishes it is useless to fight against and the reasons will become clear in time and an anthropologist does not interfere and besides, what if Hitler does get in? Mussolini's been in since 1922 and he's not goose-stepping over any borders. They're just itching to throw everything away, these Germans. It might as well be Hitler. And as long as they keep the smoke of their fires out of my air, so what? He rubbed his eyes, sitting in the near dark, the blue squares of windowed night sky surrounding him. The voice made him jump, and for the first time he truly regretted that he had come to Germany. I miss my little room. Tom! It hissed. It was Chris, who was fifteen and newly bearded and very, very thin. He was the youngest brother. Chris came forward, his arms wide, his head low like a charging spider. How great you're up! He whispered, lifting a chair, whirling it in the air, and setting it down, sitting across it, his hands over its back. This gymnastic maneuver was accomplished without a sound, which was quite impressive. What? snapped Tom. He always felt the politeness was optional after 11 p.m. Soren's had his go. Now me! he cried, rubbing his hands. Now me! Tom shook his head in a little irritated shiver. What? You don't believe Germany thought Tom, land of the goddamned capitals. In God. In God. In England we don't discuss such things. It's all right. I don't either. Good for you. I've never met a non-believer before. I wish there were some women around who didn't believe. I wonder about my mother sometimes. She has these looks, but she's so under his thumb. She's like a fingerprint. My God, this is exciting. You are. I saw your face during grace. It was like a mirror. You know. You know. But you won't tell me. Should you still be up? Come on, hissed Chris. I'm 15. I'm going to get out like Klaus. But no one thinks I'm smart because I don't believe what everyone else believes. I can understand that, thought Tom with a little rush of sympathy. It's hard staying true to one's beliefs. Damn right, said Chris, his eyes gleaming in glee from the blasphemy. I can't believe this god nonsense. Klaus is full of even more nonsense world spirit. The only world spirit worth anything is vodka. Do you drink? Tom shook his head. Did you ever? 
Not really. Hmm. Chris frowned. He clearly hoped that atheism came with just a little more license. I do, he said. I come down and sneak beer. I steal money and buy moonshine. This is more than a gesture. Oh, who cares? hissed Chris. His hands were shaking. It's all underway. Anyway, the ball is rolling. Father will be brought down. I'm not a communist. That's all nonsense, too. Proletariat, my ass. No rules. No rules. Passion and whim. Come together. Fall apart. Who cares? Follow your heart. Look, said Tom, holding up his hand. This is great, but I'm very tired. Chris leaned forward and grabbed Tom's forearm. No, argue with him. He's the priest. He's never wrong. I know the English have picked apart his little book. Open the gates. Save my sisters. Tell the truth. He's my host, Chris, said Tom, staring at the manic boy, trying to calm him with his eyes. Fuck the host. All right, said Tom, standing up. Chris's hand remained on his forearm. He gazed at Chris, who jerked back his own arm. Fine, he snarled softly. He rides on unchallenged. Do it yourself if you have a mind to. Oh, I have a mind, said Chris bitterly. Don't you worry about that. Just go and get your beauty sleep. Good night, said Tom, thinking it's thrashing time again. Chris refused to answer. He folded his arms and stared petulantly out the window. Tom went upstairs, climbed into bed, and managed to get an hour's sleep just before the sun came up.